Do people remember Jim Morrison fondly nowadays? Do people remember Jim Morrison really at all? Uh, you know, earlier we talked about the delineation that people were making subconsciously between art and craft in the early days of pop rock. You know, art being this destructive force and craft being, you know, this this purposeful build-up, how people would approach music live and, you know, compositionally. And uh, if the definition of art in this case is destruction and id and devil-may-care attitude, Jim Morrison was all destruction. He was one of these guys who would show up to performances wildly drunk, out of his mind, um, forgetting a lot of what he would have to sing. Uh, instead would recite spoken word poetry, improvisational words. He would invoke riots. He would taunt the audience. He would taunt security specifically. And this is what would lead to a lot of his performances becoming riots. Because of this, he ended up being an inspiration for a lot of future establishment-breaking punk artists, people like Iggy Pop and the Sex Pistols and the early punk movement. Morrison was essentially proto-punk. Uh, even if the violence uh, he courted during his life ultimately would tarnish his image in the future. Because if we remember anything about the 60s counterculture, the artists that are put on pedestals are the ones that promoted peace and love and community, which are sort of easier to remember fondly. You know, uh, Morrison was not one of these people. If you showed up to a Doors concert, if the Doors captured your imagination, it was because there was some force inside you that needed to break out. You know, something sort of related to testosterone and masculinity a little bit. Toxic masculinity was sort of a huge, a huge facet of Morrison's artistry, you know, coming from a military family and, and knowing that life and um, having a, a sort of latent narcissism, I have to believe, something that was sort of fueled by his early psychedelic drug use during his teens when he was in college doing film school. Um, perhaps this is one of the reasons why he necessarily isn't remembered as vividly as his contemporaries, especially to the younger crowd. Of course, it could have been the ultimate mediocrity of his live performances. Um, you have to understand, up until The Doors released their self-titled album, which hit huge in 1967, up till Morrison's death um, in July of 71, and that's really only four years, and the band was doing their biggest performances in 68 and 69, so only two years. Um, Morrison was wildly dependent on alcohol and this would lead to performances where he would forget his words he would just stumble um, he wouldn't even interact with the audience if he was interacting with them he was jeering them you know he really was interested in in pushing these boundaries to the limits you know and anyone who wanted to invoke chaos to push beyond their limits sort of fell for the doors uh, those were a lot of people back then, as, as evidenced by how popular they were um, as the band broke and, and started doing their performances during the counterculture. So how did his youth factor into it? You know, we always, when we go into these studies, we sort of are, we assume that whatever this person had to deal with in this, their youth would color how their life turned out and uh, how their fate happened. You know, well, as it turns out, uh, Morrison was born into a Navy family. He was essentially what they call a military brat. And uh, brat in this case is a word that is less pejorative and more um, endearing in that uh, people who are born in the military families are usually very nomadic. Uh, in fact, um, 
Morrison's father was Rear Admiral George Morrison, who commanded ships during the Gulf of Tonkin incident. And uh, if you don't know anything about American history, which, you know, uh, the Gulf of Tonkin incident would be one of the major factors for America entering the Vietnam War. So in a way, Morrison's father was almost, was indirectly responsible for that, that shit show. Um, and it's very possible that this was one of the reasons why Morrison was uh, such a rebellious person, especially towards the police. You know, this would also come to light during one of their more notorious performances, but we'll get into that a little later. Um, speaking of his father a little bit, when the doors were taking off and Morrison was considering and then deciding to go into a career in music, uh, his father was absolutely not supportive of his decision. And why would he? You know, he's one of the highest... Uh, He's one of the highest ranks in the Navy. You know, he, is, he lives and breathes this military lifestyle, and that's not very conducive to art in any form. Uh, almost diametrically opposed. Uh, there was a moment where his father was played the Doors' self-titled album, and after he heard it, he immediately relayed to his son directly that he thought that he had a complete lack of talent musically, was absolutely not supportive. He thought he should just give it up and do something else. That's tough to hear for anybody, you know, especially from somebody that you respect perhaps as much as your father. So it's possible that that may have factored into a lack of self-worth that led to this destruction. Who knows? Um, there weren't too many important moments in Morrison's early life. Other than that, there was a moment when he was about four years old. Uh, he and his parents were driving through a Native American reservation, and he allegedly witnessed uh, a car accident resulting in a, what he perceived and later wrote about as tons of injured Native Americans that were bleeding to death. Uh, he would write about blood in the streets. There were several songs where he would write poems about this particular incident. And he essentially made it out to be a lot more than it actually was because this particular event was disputed by both family and band members. They, they claimed that this story was extremely exaggerated by this guy, that the, it was just like a mild incident. Uh, but that was the kind of person that Morrissey was. He would take his life and make it poetry. Um, and that's being generous, of course. Uh, he led, because he was a military brat, we've mentioned that he led a nomadic lifestyle, and it was true. He was born in Florida, but over the course of his entire education up until his graduation of high school, he would live in San Diego, and then he finished third grade in Virginia, then moved to Texas, then Albuquerque, New Mexico, finished sixth grade back in San Diego, started high school in Alameda, California, finished high school in Alexandria, Virginia, and then went to UCLA for college. So this guy was moving back and forth, back and forth, not making any friends really, as is the case when you live that kind of lifestyle. Uh, as he was growing up, especially getting into high school, he was a voracious reader. There were a lot of teachers who knew him back then who wouldn't even recognize some of the books that he was reading. He was influenced by everyone from Friedrich Nietzsche to Arthur Rimbaud to a ton of beat poets like Kerouac and William S. Burroughs. Um, nearly every French existentialist writer who had works that were available in America, uh, he had written, he had read, and this would all come out in his poetry and his lyrics later on. College, he decided to attend film school. Film school. This is uh, where a few formative things would happen to him. This is where he would become acquaintances with keyboard player Ray Manzarek, who they would later form the doors with. Um, he also blossomed as an art forward thinker. 
Um, he was exposed to a bunch of surrealist films by um, French filmmaker Antonin Artaud. Uh, more reading, more writing, a lot of drugs. And when he finally finished his undergraduate program, uh, instead of attending graduation, he immediately moved to Venice Beach and led this bohemian lifestyle where he would just... He lived on the rooftop of one of his friends. According to Manzarek around this time, he lived almost essentially off of canned beans and LSD. What a life, right? Manzarek later reacquainted himself with Morrison because Manzarek at the time was thinking about starting up a rock band called Rick and the Ravens. This was with uh, a drummer named John Densmore and uh, Manzarek's two brothers. And uh, he found Morrison, reacquainted himself, he appreciated Morrison's poetry. He said that there was sort of a rock thing going on and he thought he would be a good fit for the band. So he invited Morrison to join to be a lead singer and Morrison agreed. They played a few shows. The brothers left the band and Densmore, the drummer, suggested a man named Robbie Krieger to be uh, a guitarist for the band. Uh, Krieger auditioned, he joined, and this was the band that would form The Doors. The Doors, of course, are named after Aldous Huxley's uh, famous book, The Doors of Perception, which was about taking LSD and uh, the, the, the doors of perception that would be broken by, by ingesting LSD and going into that psychedelic headspace. Um, Morrison would later make vocal melodies to his own lyrics, and this is how he would write songs. He didn't really know how to play too many instruments. Later during his career, he would play a piano and a Moog synthesizer, but he would write vocal melodies and then the band would construct chords and riffs around these songs. And this, if, if Morrison wrote any songs, this was how the band did it. Um, interestingly, Morrison would not be the only contributor to the band's lyrics. Robbie Krieger would also contribute significantly to a bunch of lyrics that would later become um, some of the band's more well-known songs. Uh, so every band needs a start in order to get big. And this is how The Doors got big. They found a residency at this really rundown club uh, called London Fog, and uh, this residency, meant they would play every week. A lot of bands would do this back then. And this residency helped the band gel together. This is how they formed how to be an improvisational band. And improvisation was a huge part of why the band ended up being as big as they did, because since Morrison would go off the rails during his performances, the band sort of had to pick up the slack. And uh, residencies like this is how, how the band sort of gelled into one. Um, Morrison also developed a little bit of a stage presence there. And his stage presence would evolve shortly afterward when they scored an even better uh, residency gig opening for Van Morrison's band, Them. This was before Van Morrison would kick it off as a solo artist. Uh, this was at a location called the Whiskey A Go Go, which would end up being a, a well-known club later on. Um, Van Morrison loved the fact that he shared a name with Jim. And so they had a little bit of a kinship he allegedly helped further develop Jim's stage presence. Um, you know, and this, and you see it in the performances, a lot of what Jim Morrison would do on stage was very wild, very free, very similar to how Morrison would conduct him stage, only less destructive, of course, than Jim would be. Uh, based on a recommendation by the front man of the, the band Love, this guy's name was Arthur Lee, and Love is a great band if you haven't checked them out yet. Um, they were one of those bands that were almost an also-ran of the culture if it weren't for their, uh, their record uh, Forever Changes. So he recommended Jack Holzer, who ran a little-known uh, label called Elektra Records. 
Um, he recommended that they go to one of their shows, uh, and of course, Jack was floored, and he was like, all right, we, we're going to sign you guys. You guys look like you're going to make a good amount of money for us. As it turns out, they would. Um, but this residency led to one of the most infamous shows that the Doors played, which was when they were developing the songs that would later show up on their self-titled album for Elektra. Um, one of the songs that they would play uh, is the, the, the closing track off of the self-titled album, which is called The End. If you haven't heard it, you should, but it's an 11-minute song that, that sort of goes into this weird improvisational jam that no one had really heard before. Morrison starts relaying this Oedipal story. Um, and this was the first time that he had performed the version that would appear on the record live, um, which is about... Uh, if you don't know the story of Oedipus, it's about a, a guy who kills his father and then has sex with his mother. Um, it's a deeper story, but it was relayed in the song, and he did it live, and he did it without the manager of the club knowing. The crowd loved it. The manager, of course, it was extremely controversial, so he was extremely angry, and they fired the band, so they were off of their uh, residency. Luckily for the band, signing to Elektra meant that they had a forward with which they can then make their album. So they developed and went to the studio and wrote all of the songs that would later become... The Doors, which was the album that really the band is known for. It came out in 67. Uh, later after that, it became an enormous hit. The first number one record for Elektra Records. Put that record label on the map. Put The Doors on the map. And then they just got bigger and bigger and bigger afterwards. Um, at that point, they would achieve television stardom. Uh, they tried TV for a few times. It didn't really work out until they ended up on The Ed Sullivan Show. Now, back then, censorship was a little bit of a weird thing. People didn't want to reference drug use in their lyrics. The producers of the show wouldn't allow the band to say the word higher on Light My Fire. There's a lyric on their big single, Light My Fire, that says, Baby, we couldn't get much higher. They believed that it referenced drug use, which I believe it did. Um, not a big deal nowadays, but it was back then. So they told the band, you can't sing that song. Let's sing, Babe, we couldn't get much better. You know, kind of an awkward line, but... The band was like, okay, we'll do it. And then they got together, and Ray Manzarek would say later on that this was when the band was in a little bit of a, a group conspiratorial mode, and they all agreed, according to Manzarek, that they would not sing these same lyrics. They would sing the lyrics that they were known for. So they sang the song, Morrison said the word, and Ed Sullivan was allegedly so mad he refused to shake the hands of the band after they had played, and the producer, after the cameras cut, went up to them and said, this is the last time you're ever going to play the Ed Sullivan show. And Morrison later, right afterwards, said, hey man, we just did the Ed Sullivan show. You know, another small sign towards the rebelliousness that he would be known for. So at this point, the band was getting bigger and bigger. Um, people were starting to know Morrison as being this guy who, who didn't give a fuck, you know somebody who embodied this weird animalistic you know free expression something that was very trendy upon 1967 the counterculture was starting to explode it's sort of the reason why the doors were getting as popular as they were um this of course led to uh tours and a series of shows the doors would play a ton of shows at this point just on and on and on now they didn't have this residency uh, they were starting to sell out venues. Their crowds would get bigger and bigger from 
from 2,000 to 4,000 to 8,000 to 10,000 at the Dinner Key Auditorium. What we'll do now is we're going to talk about a few key shows that sort of explain what was going on with the band and, and why they received the reputation that they did. Um, we're going to start with uh, a show at the Forest Hills Auditorium um, in August of 1967. If you don't know about the Forest Hills, uh, this was a venue that had a weird reputation for their preference in live music. Back in 1965, when Bob Dylan was starting to play around with electric instruments, he was booed off stage. He received a very negative reaction. This was a few days before um, Newport, um, that iconic uh, festival when he did uh, that uh, version of uh, Like a Rolling Stone that's well-known nowadays. So the band, somehow their booker thought they would be a good fit with Simon and Garfunkel, who were getting really big uh, off of... Uh, Parts they say Rosemary in Time before they had started release bookings. Um, so imagine this really soft, kind of angelic, uh, intellectually based folk act um, that was sort of resistant to the harder versions of rock. And then, of course, this band that's opening for them is the very definition of harder rock. Uh, and I think the band knew it at the time, specifically Morrison. Uh, there was a moment, allegedly, when uh, Paul Simon stopped into the dressing room to say hello to the doors and wish them a good show, and Morrison was extremely hostile to Simon. He was essentially was like, get the fuck out of my dressing room. Uh, the crowd hated this band, um, which is not surprising, but also, according to Manzarek and even according to Morrison, this was the worst reception in the history of the band from then on out. Like, once they had left... They and the manager narrowly escaped this increasingly violent crowd. They were leaving, and the, the crowd was banging on their doors, you know, uh, inciting violence. A little bit of a, an extreme reaction, but who knows what actually went down during these shows. Because a lot of these words are, are fan accounts and, and people who were there. People, of course, who were imbibing alcohol, taking drugs. It remains to be seen how accurate a lot of these reports are. Some of them definitely are. Like we know for sure that there were that the riots that came out, the infamous, most infamous shows that the Doors were playing, actually happened the way that they did because there's so many people and, and records and video and film and and uh, uh, music recordings. So two months later, they played you in Michigan. Morrison was extremely wasted. We're talking can't even stand up wasted. The band took the stage because he couldn't. They started playing one of their songs. When Morrison stumbled on stage, he saw he was performing to a bunch of frat bros and a lot of college students. This was, of course, U of Michigan. And he started harassing the crowd, booing them, and he got booed back. Um, this is one of the first performances where John Densmore and Robbie Krieger, the, the drummer and uh, guitarist, started getting really extremely frustrated with uh, Morrison. They were like, we're not going to play around with a guy who's not taking this seriously. And they left the stage. Manzarek sort of ran with it and started performing a, a, a song with, uh, with uh, Morrison. And then they had to run off stage because things were starting to go really south and the, the, the crowd was starting to riot. Apparently, Iggy Pop uh, was in the audience. This was before he became Iggy Pop, and uh, this was one of the performances that, that influenced him and, and made it feel as though it was okay to toy with the audience. It was, this was the kind of performance that, that awakened a little bit of, a, of an, an, not necessarily intelligent, but, but smart rebelliousness 
almost like a freedom to be like, you know what, you can you can screw with the audience, and it's okay. We can, we can turn this into performance art. The New Haven incident um, in Connecticut happened in December 1967. This was a concert in New Haven that was cut short when Jim was arrested for the first time on stage. The story goes is that he was making out with a female fan uh, in the locker room shower stall. A policeman uh, enters the locker room, sees them making out, and he tells them to cut it out. Um, this is a, just some policeman being super stuffy and stupid. Morrison rebelled. He was just like, we're not doing anything wrong. Like, I mean, maybe he was, a, he was taking advantage of a female fan, you know, which is, you know, its own thing. But uh, the policeman didn't know specifically who Morrison was. And Morrison, when he uh, rebelled, uh, he said, eat me. And the policeman said, last chance. And Morrison said, uh, last chance to eat me. And then the policeman took his mace out and maced him in the face. He perhaps maybe got the girl as well. There are conflicting accounts about this. Of course, Morrison was, you know, justifiably pissed about this. Somebody came out and said, do you know you just maced the man who's about to go on stage right now? The policeman was like, oh my God, I'm so sorry. I didn't realize who you were. And Morrison at this point was like, all right, well, you would have maced somebody else who was in this situation, but not the person who's going to be performing. And this maybe started a precedent to Morrison's ambivalence towards the security of his shows because a lot of people that would perform in security would be policemen of the, of the city. And so when he got on stage, the band was playing Backdoor Man and he started to explain in spoken word angrily what had happened backstage and he openly started to, to taunt the police and to excoriate the police. He called them little blue pigs. This was when the police would start turning from their attention on the crowd up to Morrison, they started getting angry. And uh, eventually, when they had enough, they just straight up canceled the show and uh, threw him off stage. They made up all of these different charges for him. They claimed that he was inciting a riot. They claimed that he uh, was um, obscene. He was accused of public obscenity. They even accused him of indecency. These were all charges that didn't have a lick of evidence to them. So eventually, weeks later, the charges were dropped. This show would help cement his image as a rebellious outsider. They would help increase his animosity towards authority figures in general. At this point, the band was playing bigger and bigger venues. And a lot of artists, rock artists specifically, that were starting to have a bigger crowd you know, they were all sort of worrying about how security would, would affect the audience, especially because the audience would be drunk, they would be on drugs, they would get extremely rowdy. This was a really new thing. So bands, Jimi Hendrix, The Who, a whole bunch of performers, would legitimately care about what was going on. Not Jim Morrison, though. This guy was already fed up by, by authority figures in general. Um, he was a rebel, and as the shows would get bigger and... They would play more and more of them. He was growing increasingly ambivalent towards it. So from a show in Chicago, the first concert they'd ever played in Chicago, which was Manzarek's hometown, um, Morrison actively goaded the crowd into a riot. The crowd pushed through the police barricades. They started destroying the band's equipment once the band had fleed the stage. One of the audience members uh, stage-dived to shows at the Singer Bowl in Flushing, Queens, which was already a hot and humid day uh, where the crowd was aggravated after a, a kind of mediocre who set the doors, took the stage, 
and uh, Morrison again was extremely drunk, spurred on the crowd instead of trying to control them. The crowd begins fighting, they begin tearing up the stage, Morrison's screaming on stage. Um, he goes into this lascivious uh, performance of the end. The police are now unable to control them. They flee the stage. The crowd's throwing shit. They're taking pieces of the stage and throwing it at the band. They're fighting with each other. Not even a day afterwards, they're playing Cleveland. Uh, Another near riot. Morrison was, again, extremely drunk. The crowd of 9,200 were flipped off. They were jeered at. Morrison stage-dived. He went completely off track. The The band tried to get him on track. Yet another catastrophic performance. Even when they would play in Europe... Um, Morrison was the kind of guy who, before his performance, every single time a fan offered him weed and hashish, he would just take it. Like, every single time to the point where, not even before the band started playing, the opening act, Jefferson Airplane, was playing, and he he just got on stage and spun around wildly, started dancing, collapsed on the floor, they took him to the hospital, and then because Morrison was unable to perform, the manager of the establishment talked to the crowd and were like, do you want to see the doors without Morrison? They were like, yeah, let's do it. So John Densmore ended up taking a lot of the lyrics, and uh, it was a good time, you know. So it remains to be seen whether or not Morrison was actually actively helping the band achieve what they wanted to achieve, and if he was just being a drunken idiot. These shows would end up all being precedents to the most disastrous, sort of decisive show in the Doors history, uh, which happened at the Dinner Key Auditorium in Miami in March of 1969. This is a crowd of, we now know, over 10,000 because as the band's management figured out backstage, the promoters had oversold the tickets, which was already leading to a frustrated crowd and two packed house. It was over 100 degrees in the auditorium. Morrison, of course, arrived late to the show. Um, He made his first appearance in a full beard. Uh, He was wearing leather pants. He was way too drunk to perform properly, of course. This was nothing new for him. Uh, And the show just goes disastrously. There are so many people who can give you their own accounts. Um, Some of the audio from that concert was actually played at the beginning of this podcast, so you can sort of see where Morrison's head was and the kinds of stuff he would say to the crowd. Openly inciting a riot, the local club manager threw him into the audience. The kicker... Uh, was when Morrison allegedly attempted to uh, expose his junk to the audience, which he was narrating this as he was going on. He would say, like, I'm unzipping my fly, I'm taking out my cock. Um, According to biographers, people who were sober and lucid and there, this never happened. The bandmates also claim that this never happened, but a lot of the people that were there, and the police, of course, claimed that it did. Um... I think overall it was just something that he was doing, but this was the reputation that Morrison had earned himself. So specifically because of this, but also because of how disastrous the show was, shortly after the performance, warrants were issued for Morrison's arrest. Uh, Because of this, authorities who were set to do security for the shows made the decision to start canceling door shows left and right. This This was complicating the Doors tour schedule. They didn't know where they could play next. There was a rally called the Miami Decency Rally that was formed specifically as a result of this performance. Uh, Richard Nixon, of course, approved of this measure, as of course he did. Uh, A week later, Morrison turns himself in. There were reports of him sitting in a courtroom wearing this this colored wool thing. 
uh, just sitting there quietly while he was being indicted of these charges. Six months in jail and I think a $50,000 bail was uh, the result of it. Of course, the charges were dropped. I think he was given a pardon in 2010, you know, almost 40 years after he died or over 40 years after he died. Uh, this one concert signaled the beginning of the end for this band. It made it very hard to be in the doors afterwards because nobody was taking you seriously after that. All of a sudden you were a national threat. Um, interestingly, the one person who continued to be a vocal proponent of Morrison's antics, the guy who built up the legend, because as we all know, rock and roll back then was all about legend, was Ray Manzarek, the, the keyboardist, the guy who would be responsible for the unique sound of the band. Um, if you ever see any interviews with The Doors, you'll notice that Manzarek seemed to be the guy who was the most lucid, the guy who would talk um, with the most perspective and, and be aware of where The Doors were uh, as a band and, and, you know, the guy who had their image cemented. Like, he knew where The Doors were, he knew where they were going, and he was the guy who was most in it, like, in his mind. Compared to Morrison, where if you see any interviews with him, just spaces, just pauses. He would be talking about free imagery and and uh, delusions of grandeur. There was a weird element of self-absorption, a weird element of, of latent narcissism, perhaps, to his conduct that made him seem a little bit off-putting to people who weren't into it. Maybe he was running from demons. Again, something about his background and the fact that he came from a military family that he wanted to distance himself from. Maybe he was just that type of personality. Whatever the case, uh, his dependency on alcohol continued to get worse and worse. Like we mentioned, he showed up to recording studios uh, visibly inebriated. Um, his antics would get worse and worse and just more and more uh, uncaring, perhaps. And... The band recorded a few more albums. They recorded The Soft Parade. They recorded Morrison Hotel. And, of course, L.A. Woman, which was their final album with Morrison. And he seemed... It seemed a little bit of a turning point. It seemed like maybe he was maybe getting on the right track. Uh, whatever the case, uh, by 1971, he was living in Paris with this woman who he had maintained an open relationship with at the time. This woman named Pamela Corson. Uh, they were both doing hard drugs, and this was where we finally get to the moments that would lead to Jim Morrison's mysterious death. Of course, I say the word mysterious because we still don't actually know what happened because French law does not mandate an autopsy. So because we don't have any information on what exactly caused Morrison to die, um, it's still up to this day. The actual verdict is heart failure, but there are several accounts saying that heroin was involved. So here's the story. Morrison was found in the bathtub of his apartment. Um, he seems to have a little bit of foam and blood around the nose, which, if anything, signified that he was snorting heroin and he had an overdose on it, um, which allegedly led to his heart failure. So it seemed to be a freak accident. There was some new information, a new relatively credible theory that came out in 2007. This comes from a man named Sam Burnett, who was a friend of Morrison's. He was an owner of a club uh, around there at the time in Paris. He also was a writer for New York Times. Um, so according to him, in the late 
late hours of July 3rd. We're talking like 2, 3 in the morning. Morrison shows up to the Rock and Roll Circus Club looking to buy heroin for Corson, his girlfriend. He scored. He immediately split for the bathroom, started doing some of it himself. This is when he overdosed. Uh, he didn't come out of the bathroom for half an hour. Um, Burnett was like, uh, somebody got to check the stall to see if he's in there. Of course he was. They banged the door down, and there he was, slumped over. There was foam and blood coming out of his nose, which signifies the overdose. The dealers who sold Morrison the drug then showed up. They looked at him, and they were like, nah, he's still alive. He's just, he's just having a little bit of a sleep. And they, they carried him out. They took the body. Um, and then moments later, uh, once everything was all settled, somebody representing the club's owner called Burnett and told him to swear himself to secrecy. He's like, this is... Do not say what happened here. These were the drug dealers that apparently moved the body to the bathtub. And this was all meant as an action to deflect the blame from the drug dealers who sold him the drug. Uh, according to Burnett, Marianne Faithful was also in the Rock and Roll Circus Club that night and was also sworn to secrecy. So she gave her own account later in life where he had snorted heroin, um, but she failed to mention that he had done it at the club. So this is a relatively credible theory. Again, we're never going to know what exactly happened. But essentially, Morrison died in a weird decline. You know, people were sort of looking to him as somebody who wasn't, he wasn't really remembered fondly for his performances because his performances were drunken and relatively me mediocre. The Doors were sort of, they, they had hit number one with L.A. Woman, but they, they were at a little bit of a decline. And so he burned out, you know, he, he, he burned out just in a flame of, of weird poetry and a vortex of rebelliousness. And, you know, it's one of those things where it's not it's maybe not necessarily a tragic death because this was the kind of lifestyle that he tooted his entire life. You know, something that he sort of he he sort of worshipped this uh, this transient vagabond lifestyle and his his demise sort of reflected that so it's hard to feel sympathetic for a guy like him and the man was indeed all id his was not an intellectual's affair you know he said whatever happens happens you know of the leaders of the late 60s counterculture movement he ended up being the voice of anger counterbalancing the voices of peace and love and i think ultimately Perhaps at that point, we needed people holding up the world instead of decimating it. Um, Legacy-wise, you know, musically, of course, he didn't play an instrument. Most of the Doors' musical legacy, you have to hand to Ray Manzarek and that keyboard playing. You know, he was the guy that sort of held up the musical end of the band. Morrison wasn't really terribly well-known for it. If there's anything that he was a legacy of, it was, like we mentioned, starting a, a rebellious attitude in... in artists that would then form the punk movement you know we mentioned that Iggy Pop was in the audience and and you can see in a lot of Iggy Pop's most iconic performances that same kind of destructiveness that you saw in Jim Morrison when he was playing it was just from a from a perspective of somebody who was actively thinking about what he was doing and then of course Johnny Rotten and Sid Vicious and um people who would later be influenced by those bands you know this is what Jim Morrison's legacy would amount to. So maybe that's why he isn't as fondly remembered, because his is less musical and more attitude. Who knows? Um, 
So that was Jim Morrison's life. That was Jim Morrison's death. I want to close this off by reading the last few words from what would later be known as the Paris Journal, the last book of writing that Morrison would write before his death. And uh, as his own poetry, of course, it's full of uh, indulgent imagery and, uh, and uh, smarminess, perhaps. But I think the words are fitting for it. This is the poem. This is my poem for you, great flowing funky flowered beast, great perfumed wreck of hell, great good disease and summer plague, great goddamn shit-ass motherfucking freak. You lie, you cheat, you steal, you kill. You drink the southern madness swill of greed. You die utterly and alone. Mud up to your braces, someone new in your knickers. And who would that be? You know. You know more than you let on, much more than you betray. Great slimy angel whore, you've been good to me. You really have been swell to me. Tell them you came and saw and looked into my eyes and saw the shadow of the guard receding, thoughts in time and out of season. The hitchhiker stood by the side of the road and leveled his thumb in the calm calculus of reason. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, next week we are diving into somebody who uh, may be one of the most fascinating uh, historical figures of this list, Mr. Kurt Cobain, uh, frontman of the band Nirvana. At this point, this is the 1990s, so there's more information about this guy, so it's going to be a lot of me to dig into. I hope you guys enjoy that conversation, and I hope you guys enjoyed this one. Um, check out the website on tapedeckpodcast.com. There's more stuff to check out. Till then, I have been Rob Mora telling you don't drink and drive or don't get too drunk and stand on stage and uh, destroy your legacy. Uh, Take care, everybody. Bye-bye.